Welcome to the Building Efficiency Podcast presented by Nenny and Associates. I'm your host, Jim Schaefer. Now, if this is your first time tuning in, Nenny and Associates is an executive search firm focused on the building efficiency industry, hence why we named the podcast the way that we did. And simply put, we help our clients find the right talent. And each week we sit down with leaders from the industry to discuss their backgrounds, how they got started, and where they see the industry going. We also get to know our guests and find out what drives them to be successful. So on today's episode, episode six, we sit down with Dr. Tim Unruh, who is the executive director at the National Association of Energy Service Companies, or more commonly referred to as NASCO, and really enjoyed spending time with Tim, learning about how he got started in the industry, what it's like working for the federal government, and what he wants his lasting legacy to be. You're not going to want to miss out on this one, so be sure to stick around until the end. And if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to our channel. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a five-star review. So we really do think you're going to enjoy this episode and let's drop in. All right, welcome everyone to the Building Efficiency Podcast. Today, we are sitting down with Dr. Tim Unruh, who is the Executive Director at the National Association of Energy Service Companies, or more commonly referred to as NASCO. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think you and I have been in the same room multiple times over the years at the different NASCO conferences, and we haven't had a chance to spend a whole lot of time together. So I was really glad that you um, carved out some time and and made some time to sit down with us. It's always fun to talk to people in the industry and uh, hear some of their perspective and also uh, get to tell some of yours. Yeah, yeah, no, you were were probably one of the most um, commonly requested guests when we launched this thing, ever since you get you got to get Tim on, you got to get Tim Unruh on. So um, you were you were in high demand. Well, um, I, I hate it when expectations are set so high because now I've got something to live up to, That's, and I'm afraid I can only go down from there. No, I think I think we're going to live up to it here today. So, uh, Tim, I know a lot of our audience will know who you are, but for the people that don't, can you give us an idea of your background? Yeah, so today my role is I'm the executive director of the National Association for Energy Service Companies. Um, I started uh, with the association on in October of 2018 and took over as executive director from Terry Singer, who had been the executive director for about 30 some odd years uh, on January 1 of 2019. So I'm about a year and a half or so into the job and having a great time getting to know members and uh, uh, getting involved in the industry. But, uh, you know, my background is is uh, quite varied. Uh, I, I would never have imagined that I'm working uh, in Washington, D.C. at an office just a couple blocks from the White House uh, doing work for an energy services company industry. I remember when I was in uh, elementary school, I had a teacher that told us that we were going to work in an industry. Uh, half of us would work in an industry that did not exist today. And of course, you know, you hear those things like that. And you say, oh, yeah, uh-huh, sure, sure. Well, I, I think I fall into that. I don't think energy saving performance contracts were happening back in the early 70s. I think that the, the history is not quite that far back. And uh, and, and even more so, uh, all through my childhood, my, my mom droned into me that I had to be a doctor, a dentist, or a lawyer. And... Um, I'm not a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer today. So I guess I, I may have disappointed mom in some way, shape, or form, but I, I'm pretty happy with where I wound up. Right? I, I did get PhD. the PhD. Huh. I did. I did do that. But yeah, so I, when I started college, I started college as a pre-dentistry major. And um, 
I, I got into those classes and I had to dissect a squid where they injected its veins with blue and and red uh, paint so that we could identify them. And I got into doing that and I said, oh, my God, Tim, what are you doing? This is not where you want to be. And my best friend was over in the College of Engineering and he said he loved it. And I said, I think I'll try to become an engineer. And uh, and I did. <laughs> so it's kind of a haphazard way to get where you got. And uh, uh, when I went to school, I, I majored in power systems and digital systems for my Ph.D. And I uh, began uh, working in an area called power quality and making sure that the electrical power from the systems uh, supplied the proper type of power to electronic components so they could operate right. And I, and I, I, I like that. And that was where I got my first job in Michigan working for Consumers Power as a power quality engineer. And, uh, it, it, you know, my first job out of college with a Ph.D., and I remember walking into the job and uh, I, I I learned that they didn't know quite what they were doing either because I, I was given a, uh, a sales goal. I was told as a power quality engineer, I had to sell some services and I was given a sales goal. Now, being new to Michigan, I was a Kansas boy and just moved to Michigan. I had really no contacts and uh, no idea of the structure of the organization. And uh, I said, so how would you expect me to find my my contacts to sell this to? I said, should I like go to the phone book? And uh, the answer was, sure, if that's what you think is the best. Oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, as, as I got into the job, oh. I realized that they didn't quite know what they were trying to do yet either. And so we all kind of figured it out together and uh, it turned out to be a pretty fun job. And uh, in that job, um, I I quickly got into other areas of the power company. And uh, pretty soon I was a supervisor over a group that did energy efficiency. And uh, as part of that role, I ended up having 21 engineers report to me. When I was 29 years old, I had this job of these engineers reporting to me. And uh, the youngest engineer on my staff was about 50 years old. And um, it really taught me a lesson. Uh, I I learned that um, as a manager, I'm not really supposed to necessarily be the smartest guy in the room, but the key thing is is to know what resources you have available and to respect those resources and draw upon those resources and try to figure out what the best way to go forward. And uh, I, I really found with, with the staff I had, I had a lot of really high quality, talented engineers that were working for me. And so I started describing it that they didn't work for me. I described that they worked with me. And as I described it that way, I really started to have to value the people and recognize that I wasn't going to be successful unless I drew upon the experience that they brought to me. Yeah, words matter, right? Subtle nuance, a little change in, in a word there makes a big difference, right? It, it does. And uh, um, I, I, I truly felt that way. I, I think if you, you can say the words, but unless you really mean the words, they, they, they just don't carry weight. And I found over and over again, valuing the people that you have available to you is, is critical. You know, in, in our industry, performance contract industry, a lot of times we don't have assets that are what I would call hard assets. Our assets are our people. And, uh, you know, there have been, it's been known that people actually will work for one organization and maybe leave and work for another organization. And then sometimes they even come back and work for that same organization again, or yet a third organization. And uh, I, I suspect that many associates are re- very well aware of those types of things. No, we, but, have, we have no idea. We have no, no, no idea what's going on there. 
<laughs> but, but you know, I, I found that you have to value the people because sure. um, whether they're your coworker or your competitor or your or your you know helper at a at an event, you you run into people multiple times in your career, and you really have to value the people and uh, show them that you care. Uh, because those are our assets of our industry, and they're all over the place. And and I have people I know over the industry that work for a whole broad swath of the companies that are members of NASCO at this point. Yeah, so that was that was the the taste of the the utility world, and, and obviously you learned a lot there. So when did you get your first taste of energy performance contracting? How did you get into the the industry here? Well, we did a little bit, or we tried to get into a little bit while I was in Michigan uh, with a. Uh, uh, a subsidiary of Consumers Power that was started, but I really got my taste of performance contracting uh, when I moved down to Kansas and began to work for Custom Energy. Um, I worked for a, a guy named Buddy Haas, was uh, my boss there and one of the part owners of Custom Energy. And uh, I moved my family down to Kansas from Michigan, uh, back to where I had grown up in Kansas, and and uh, began working for Custom Energy as uh, as an engineering manager. And I progressed my way through. Uh, performing just about every role in the company, it seems like, uh, from having to uh, go out and measure and verify savings and light fixtures to designing the projects to working with subcontractors and even assisting with sales calls and uh, worked my way up to be the vice president of operations there where I had construction and engineering reporting to me. And uh, I did that. I worked for Custom Energy for 10 years, and then uh, uh, we were acquired by Con Edison Solutions. And I stayed with them a couple of years. And uh, after a couple of years, it was time to just do something different. And so I picked up and I went to uh, uh, Department of Energy. And that was quite an adventure. I uh, left my job in, in Olathe, Kansas. And I went and lived uh, in a suburb of Washington, D.C., where I live today. And I took over the role as the Federal Energy Management Program for the U.S. Department of Energy as the director of that program. And... Uh, when I started that program, I thought that all the program did was manage the performance contracts for the federal government. And I learned that while they do that role, they do a lot of other roles as well. And uh, it became quite a learning experience for me in working within a large organization. So I went from an organization at Custom Energy where we had about 40 people or so over to an organization where I had uh, a substantial staff and a substantial organization to support and a budget that I had to manage that uh, was accountable to the U.S. taxpayer and to Congress. So it was a whole different experience for me. Uh, but it was a growing experience. And I made a lot of contacts there. And uh, I found that I was working with some really talented people at Department of Energy as well. I, I did that role for about six years. And then uh, I moved into a role called the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Renewable Power. And I ran all of the renewable power research uh, for the first two years of the Trump administration. And uh, at that time, I had heard about the opportunity at NASCO, and uh, that was something uh, with the energy savings performance contracting industry and the ESCO industry kind of at the core of my love of my job. I thought that would be a great place to go, and I applied and became the executive director of NASCO at that point. And uh, I, I think it's been a great ride. It's been fun to do all those different roles, and, and I find that each role kind of prepares you for something in life and, and helps you learn. Uh, back at Custom Energy, I learned the whole functioning of the ESCO industry, uh, having to do so many different roles. I feel like I, I, I experienced what just about every employee at an ESCO probably has to go through to get a project put together and delivered and even live with it for many, many years. 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious. I want to rewind the clock. Just uh, just go back in your story a little bit there. So, you know, I'm just kind of following this, uh, you know, starting off a utility, right? Large environment and then going to work for looked like um, kind of a or sounded like a, a niche ESCO there. And in Kansas, you said 40 people that was later bought by a major utility. So going from small company to big company and then going to the federal government. Right. So what, what was your thought process and going to work for the DOE? And, you know, what was like the biggest challenge or transition that you had to make there going to work for the federal government? Well, that's, that's a great observation, you know, for the small, large. I, I first of all would tell you that regardless of the size of the organization, they each have their particular culture that you have to learn to adapt to. Even a small business with just a few people has a culture and you have to learn to work within that culture. Uh, when I go to DOE, I had to learn to work within its culture. The difference between a small and a large organization is the large organization tends to have a lot more rules, processes, and procedures in place. Because there's so many people, it's hard for uh, a manager to have at, uh, direct control of everything that goes on. And so you establish large processes and procedures to manage the organization. And uh, whether that was a big utility or whether that was U.S. Department of Energy, that was the case. And so I had to learn those rules and, and how you work with those rules. And that was probably my biggest consideration. Um, for, for me, though, uh, taking the, the role at the Department of Energy, I didn't know what the people would be like working there. I didn't know what would I have a staff that wanted to work hard for me? Were they passionate about their work? I just didn't know that. Uh, I was coming from a small organization where if you didn't have passion about your job, you just didn't make it. You just couldn't survive in the culture. Uh, what I found at Department of Energy was that I found a lot of people that had a lot of passion. I had a very highly educated workforce. And uh, while I had some people that had been there a short period of time, the younger uh, people, I had some people with deep experience that helped me get oriented to the organization as well. Uh, what I didn't expect at Department of Energy was that I had access to the U.S. National Lab System. And we uh, employed the use of the National Labs like they were staff in many cases, and they provided a lot of expertise as well. No, that's, that's excellent. So, um, again, I think a lot of our audience is going to know about NASCO, but for the people that don't, can you just give us a little bit of an overview on NASCO, why the organization exists, and, and kind of what you guys are trying to get accomplished here today? Yeah, the, uh, the, the organization, uh, NASCO, National Association of Energy Service Companies, is uh, really there to advocate for the industry. We're supposed to make sure that that those that are working with our industry know about us, uh, that the rules are fair, and that we, we, we try to remove bottlenecks and problems that occur in project development. Uh, we also think our role is to make sure that we, we educate people about the industry and about issues related to the industry. We do that through webinars and events. And, and then we, I think also we, we want to bring members together. Uh, what you find is that uh, if you continually work in, in, a, in an isolated area, you, you lose track of maybe what's happening in the broader case in the industry. And sometimes it's good to validate your concerns with others in the industry. If I have a concern over the way a project is being treated or the way development is going or maybe a technology is even working, it's good to be able to have the ability to balance that off of others. But, but I would be remiss if I, if I didn't actually read our value proposition. You know, we paid good money for people to develop this for us. And so I, I feel like I have to read it. So let's hear it. NASCO, <laughs> NASCO is the leading advocacy and accreditation organization for energy service companies and is dedicated to modernizing America's built building infrastructure through performance contracting. 
Uniting the energy service industry, NASCO promotes favorable government policies, sponsors a rigorous accreditation program, and provides training and education and champions ESCO's interests across the nation. And so I think the only thing that that mentions that I didn't mention was the accreditation program. It's, it's really our, I think, our very strong value proposition that we offer accreditation. And uh, really the purpose of accreditation is to grow integrity in the industry, is to make sure that the companies that do the work are really the best that they can be. And that's our goal. Oh, that's, that's excellent. You know, one thing I was, I was curious about, you know, because you, you're talking about everyone kind of coming together and working towards this greater purpose and you got this, this great organization here. But I also know in the industry, a lot of these uh, these folks are fierce competitors. Right. So is what's how do you balance that? Right. When you're when you're bringing everyone together, have you found that most people tend to like play nice in the sandbox together and work towards this common goal? Or do you still have to kind of like balance between, hey, these you know, at the end of the day, these companies are competitors? Well, what, what it comes down to is uh, when we bring people together, we in particular don't talk about jobs in specific. You know, and that's that's really the key thing is I, I don't talk about where I'm trying to get the next job. I don't talk about my strategy of getting that job and I don't talk about what jobs I'm chasing. Um, but there's a whole lot of other things you can talk about. You can talk about, you know, I, in in a certain geographic region, I was experiencing some challenges with the way they look at the contract structure or um, uh, insurance on the savings or whatever it might be. Those are common things that everyone runs into that you can talk about, and those become issues that the NASCO can go solve. But you're right. It, it is a challenge. Everybody is very secretive. Uh, I, I, thought it, I thought it was uh, fascinating. Um, when we do certain projects, for the most part, the technologies and the way we develop projects as an industry are fairly consistent across companies. But yet we're also fierce competitors. We all believe we have a little bit of a unique twist to ours. We don't want to open those doors and share anything. And so I still have to recognize again that that it is a very tense competitive environment and uh, everyone has numbers to meet. Everyone wants to make sure they do the absolute very best. Certainly, certainly. And, you know, one thing I was curious about, and I think our listeners, listeners are definitely going to be curious about, Tim, where do you see the industry going? Because you've seen the evolution of performance contracting and the entire ESCO industry in itself, you know, kind of from beginning up to, up until present. So where do you see the industry going just from your perspective and, and all the knowledge that you have? So it's it's interesting. Uh, when, when we used to look at the industry, and I still think of it today when I look at the industry, I think of our projects. And, and uh, when we put together a project, they have four primary issues, I think, that we have to focus upon. There's the first and then what I also think is the easiest is the technical issues. Uh, how do you, you know, what, what technology are you going to put in? How do you technically get it all to work together? Th- those are pretty easy, I think, and solvable. Then there's financial issues. Where does the money come from to make it happen? Uh, what's the structure to, to put that money? How's the money flow and so forth? Then there's organizational issues, and that includes uh, the enabling legislation. That includes the organization and how it's structured and how they might accept a project like this, uh, how it might change the people's roles and what how they might feel about it. And then finally, are the people issues. How do people feel about the project? Because it seems like our type of work, for some reason, draws out an emotional response at times. And uh, people issues also in how is the project going to affect the environment that people work? I, I can remember uh, going in with projects where we did lighting retrofits, and uh, people reacted negatively to the lighting retrofit, thinking that the new lighting was going to cause them to be ill. 
And it, it's just a lack of understanding. And uh, so there's people issues you have to solve as well. I think historically, our industry has been driven by technical progress, uh, meaning that we started with lighting retrofits. Lighting retrofits, when you went from magnetic ballast to electronic ballast and T12 to T8 lamps, provided a massive amount of savings, especially if you could go from an incandescent solution to one of the new electronic ballast solutions. You had a massive savings that was saving so much money, it drew, threw off savings that could drive other retrofits in the project. And that technical innovation drove our industry. As time went on, we saw different technologies do that same thing. From going to LED lighting, which is happening today, to chiller savings that provided significant reductions in uh, energy use, boilers that were far more efficient than they used to be, and then big innovations in control technology and what you can do with controls and how well they work and how reliable they become. You know, things like uh, you know, room sensors for CO2 and so forth have become far more reliable than they used to be such that we can depend upon their performance for many, many years and know that we can expect savings from that type of device. But I don't know that technology is driving our jobs today as much as possible. For example, one of those I mentioned was the LED lighting. While there's still a massive amount of savings there, it's savings off of a baseline that's much lower than it was previously. So there's not as much savings to get. So while it might save 50%, we save 50% once in the retrofit, may have 50% again, it doesn't throw off the money like we might have expected in the old retrofits to do. But we don't see project volumes dropping substantially. And I think part of it is that we see new structures in finance coming in. And that new structure in finance is changing the way we look at projects. New contract structures are giving us ways to do projects differently than we've ever done before. And one of the things that, that I'm, I'm listening to the, to the industry today, and I think that maybe people issues could begin to drive projects because now we hear that with the coronavirus and the pandemic response, as we go back into buildings, we're expecting different things out of our buildings than we expected before. And that, I think, is going to be a driver for future projects. For example, we hear about UV sanitation. We hear about uh, increased filtration. We hear about uh, isolating people. We even uh, talk about uh, trying to use infrared sensors to detect the temperature of people as they come in the building. Uh, we hear about contact tracing, knowing where people are in the building at all times, so that as someone becomes sick, you know who they might have come in contact with at work, and you can begin to do isolation. So as you do those things, all those technologies I just mentioned are things that our industry, ESCOs, are experts at installing. They know what they're doing with this. It's not new, and they know how to maintain these systems over many, many years. And so all of a sudden, we, we started with technical changes driving our industry. We had a period where finance is driving and still is, and possibly we have people issues starting to drive that as well. And I don't know, you could maybe throw this into organizational issues, people issues, but we'll see the changes in the organization and the changes in the people's expectations potentially driving the future industry that could take us into new horizons. Uh, one of the things that I think also can drive our industry is the change from traditional power sources that are based on fossil fuel to uh, renewable power sources as we go to solar and wind. Solar and wind power sources are what we would call variable sources. They, they don't actually put out a consistent set of power. And one of the key things is often they're not dispatchable, meaning that I can't decide when they're going to generate power. The environment decides when they're going to generate power. And so we, we have a variable source coming in, matching up with, with a, an older source that was consistent and steady and even output. 
one of the things that we recognize, though, is that our buildings and our load has never been a solid, steady draw. It's always been changing. And so I, there's a new movement where you talk about distributed energy storage, just distributed, distributed energy resources. And you think about buildings as the ability to change the way they draw power. And if you can match up these power sources that are variable and buildings that are variable, you might have an ability to match the law, the load and the source better than we've had in the past. Combine that with battery storage, buildings variability, source variability, and you have a grid that just might work all together. Again, the ability to control a building is something that ESCOs are experts at. They know how to control buildings. They know how to cause the load to go up, down, change, whatever they need, when they need it. The integration is what's lacking. Also lacking probably is the financial structure around the rates and how you would compensate a building for doing that type of changing. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for our industry, and I think we're just on the cusp of a whole new set of opportunities that we can we can begin to grasp. Yeah, it's super fascinating, and uh, I think we're all curious and interested to see how this whole thing is going to play out. So I appreciate your insight there, and I know our our, uh, our listeners are going to as well. So Tim's uh, predicting the future here, guys. I think uh, I think he's got it figured out. Uh, so let's go, go ahead. I think I think one of the other things that that's really key for us is is getting the understanding. You know, um, I talked about people, and sometimes it draws an emotional response from our projects. I think it's really important for us to recognize that that there, there is this emotional response. Uh, I, I don't know. Some people may think that maybe our value proposition is too good to be true, that we'll come in and build a project based on the savings. And so there's really no out-of-pocket money. Or maybe they just don't believe the savings. Maybe they don't believe the pricing. There's a whole array of things. But just to demonstrate uh, some of the misunderstandings that can occur, I, I, I had a project with a school district many years ago. Uh, we had done a pretty substantial energy reduction project for a school district. And uh, the first year uh, we did our savings report, they did not make their savings. So we go up to go visit the school district and talk to them and help them understand the fact that they had done an addition that doubled the square feet of the school, that that addition was drawing energy is why they didn't make the savings guarantee. And I remember the statement from the superintendent. He said, but our architect assured us that our energy bill would not go up. And I thought, now, how could the architect make such a statement? And so the, the first thing is, you know, is, is, when you're in that situation, you want to say, what a dumbo. He, how could he not know the energy bill is going to go up? But then I think, well, you know, a licensed architect probably is not somebody I would think of as a dumbo. He probably knows what he's talking about. There may just be a communication issue and understanding of what's happening. And so as we figured out, the architect was trying to tell the school superintendent with the project he did with us and the addition, his energy bill would not go up. The school superintendent heard that the addition was going to be so efficient that his energy bill was not going to go up and that the other savings he would get as well. That's what he heard. Maybe that's what he wanted to hear. And so my problem was, is here's me, the guy from Kansas flying halfway across the country to tell you about this. But his architect, who he probably goes to the country club with, was telling him something different. And so working that issue out becomes a challenge for us. And it's something we run into often in our industry is how do we make sure that we're conveying the proper information, communicating the right details, and helping people to understand the reality of this. And when it comes to savings, I always find it fascinating. When we do these lighting retrofits and we do a lot of the retrofits, it's not rocket science. We know the physics can perform and get these savings. We know that they work right. And so it may just require a tweak. 
It may be that the people have interfered with the savings or the use has changed, but we know that the equipment works. And so it's important for us to make sure we convey that and help the people understand how the savings occurs and how they interact with it. It, it makes a world of difference. Indeed, indeed. And yeah, Tim, let's uh, let's transition to the, the last part of the, uh, the show here. So these are four questions that I ask to, to every guest that comes on, and I wanted to lead off here. What are your daily non-negotiables? Well, I, I read that, and I wondered kind of what you meant by non-negotiables. But uh, my interpretation is, is, you know, where do you try to stand firm? And, and for me, uh, I, 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 I think I, I want to honor God, I want to honor others, and I want to honor self. And uh, when I look at look at that, that that seems to be what I've learned over my career is that uh, I have to have high integrity. I have to maintain as high integrity as I can. And that's how I try to honor God. I I have to look at other people and try to find the value in them, uh, not make assumptions about them and try to try to lift them up and help them succeed. Uh, Because I think that's my role as a leader and as a manager is to get people to succeed then. Honor self, um, I've just got to make sure that I don't stray from what my core beliefs are. Uh, I want to make sure that I keep my family in focus and uh, make sure that I do what I think is the right thing. And Tim, for this next one, uh, if you could rewind the clock, 22-year-old Tim, where did you uh, get your undergrad from? Wichita State University. Wichita State. Okay. So you're you're coming out of Wichita State, 22-year-old Tim. What advice would you give to your 22-year-old self? Well, at, at 22, uh, when I came out and uh, uh, graduated with my degree, I was already married and uh, I was headed into graduate school because it just seemed like the thing to do at the time is to go get that master's degree. Um, I, I, I think uh, back to uh, my, my non-negotiables, I, I think I would tell myself that integrity is important and you're going to run into cases where that integrity will be tested. You need to adhere to it and stay strong. I I think uh, I tell myself to invest in other people. I I think uh, uh, at that time, you're often eager to go out and try to make a name for yourself and you want to make money and you want to have things. And uh, I think I tell myself that those are not the most important things in life. Invest in people. There we go. And I think this next question will kind of tie into the, the last two here. So, Tim, what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, um, having things to do. Uh, I, I don't like to be idle. Um, I enjoy serving others. I, I love it when a member calls and has a question and needs assistance, understanding the market. They need some background materials uh, or there's something even larger or more complex I can help out with. I've always uh, gotten enjoyment in uh, trying to help others get things done and to understand things better. Um, I like teaching people and uh, I see that serving others and taking care of them is part of that. And last question here, what do you want your lasting legacy to be? Well, um, I, I go back to uh, my, my working with my grandfather. You know, my grandfather was, was a guy who gave me a lot of wisdom. I remember as a, as a kid, he gave me a project to do. And uh, I, I did that project. And um, I didn't do a very good job. I, I was actually pretty bad at it. And uh, I, I did it badly because I didn't care. I did it badly because I didn't think I was going to get any re- remuneration or payment for what I was doing. And I did it badly because I just wanted to get it over with and out of there. And I just didn't care what anybody thought. And I remember my grandfather gets, he says, are you done? And he says, yes. Yeah. Well, let's go take a look at it. And all of a sudden I just had this sense of huge dread. 
He's going to go look at this. And I think it was something stupid. I think it was stacking firewood or something like that. And I remember going back and, and he comes back and he looks at me and he puts his hands on his waist and he gives you that look that probably only your grandpa can give you. And he just says, are you proud of your work? <laughs> I, was like, mm. I, was like, I was like, great. This is not going well. And he says, and, and I, I think my response was even more classic. I said, I said, not really, but I wasn't getting paid for it. <laughs> Probably not the best thing to say to grandpa. And I remember him saying to me, he said, he says, Tim, he says, you've got to take pride in your work, whether you're getting paid for it or not, because people will judge you and evaluate you based upon the work product that you produce. And by golly, I, I think he was right. I, I think my little teenage self learned something there. And so uh, my legacy, I think, is that when I get all done, I don't care that people say Tim Under did this or Tim Under did that. I think my legacy is that when, I, when I'm gone, that the people that interacted with me in my life are somehow better off or more knowledgeable or better well-adjusted or happier with themselves because they had interacted with me. Oh, that's that's absolute gold right there. And I think that's a perfect way to, to close out the show. So, Tim, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, spending some time with us here. So um, thanks again. Always enjoyable. Thanks for the time. All right. All right. So there you have it. Episode six with Dr. Tim Unruh. What a fascinating discussion. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And if you did enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you enjoy listening to your favorite podcast. We hope you're sharing this with your friends and colleagues as well. And one last thing, if you have ideas for future guests from the industry, please reach out to me. We'd love to hear from you, loyal listeners. So that's it for today's episode. And until next time, I'm Jim Schaefer, and we'll catch you next week.